I woke up one morning and I was shivering and I was shaking and I couldn't get my brain to slow down and I was having like a breakdown. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, this is Al Levin from The Depression Files. I am excited. Today on the line we have John Harper. John is an assistant principal. He's an author, a podcaster, and a public speaker. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. John, I'm excited to have a fellow educator, not only a fellow educator, but a fellow assistant principal on the line. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but that's what I do as well. So I work in a K-8 through public school here in St. Paul Public Schools, and I'm an assistant principal as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, this is my... Uh Ninth or tenth year as an assistant principal. I think I might be breaking the record here for yeah. a number of years as an AP, but that's okay. I have a great job. Mine is even longer, so I'm probably. Okay. I bet I'm 14 years as a an assistant principal, or so somewhere around there. And uh, I know you've been in education 21 years. I think I read as well. You know, I think so, and it's embarrassing when I get asked that. I can't even remember. It's like 21, <laughs> 22. I, I lose track. That's funny because like, all track. I remember is I started in 99, so I kind of lose track as well. But So it's, a, it's very similar to yours as well. So a lot in common. You know, I reached out to you the first time. I don't even know if I shared with you how or why I reached out. Um, okay. but I reached out to you and it was only a week ago and typically I've, I'm, you know, I think I'm on spring break now, so I'm able to get in guys in quicker. So it's been great, but just about a week or so ago, because I read an article you wrote in ASCD. Oh yes. I, I was fortunate enough to get a piece published in ASCD express about, uh, five tips for helping, helping teachers. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, and a piece I love about that is really what you were getting at is, their mental health and self-care, and how do you take care of yourself as an educator? Yes, I mean, I think it's it's so important because teachers, especially right now with everything going on, I mean, depending on when this comes out, but just at, at any time, teachers spend their, their days and nights thinking about how they can help kids. And, 
you know, a lot of times they neglect themselves, and it's tough because you see the results of that, especially as an AP, as you can relate to. You, you see your you see your teachers just given everything they have, and it it's hard to watch sometimes. Yeah, so I don't know if people, if the general public really understands just how stressful of a role it is, right? I mean, they're trying to please their administrator oftentimes, sometimes who might be breathing down their throats doing formal observations. If they're grade three or above, at least here in Minnesota, they have the state-mandated tests and people are looking at the test scores. They've got angry parents. They've got kids who have incredible challenges. I don't think we have enough uh, mental health support for kids in our schools and uh, and they end up being their counselor their pseudo counselor at times as well and um, I think I may have mentioned but angry parents right so you got the parents you got the administrators and then you've got all the lesson planning and then you've got lessons that can go to crap because of some disciplinary issues that you bump into in the room yeah I mean I'll be honest I haven't I haven't taught for probably 13 years and Teaching has gotten so much harder than when I when I taught when I started teaching twenty some years ago. It's just what's expected of teachers. I mean, it used to be, you know, differentiating instruction. That that's a lot in itself. And now, besides that, you have to differentiate, you know, your social emotional care, how you work with each student, because each student is different. Each student comes with a different need, and it's teachers have so much on them. It's I have so much respect for what they do. And I just try to do everything I can to help them, help remind them how good they are and help remind them that it's okay to take care of themselves and it's okay to make mistakes because we all make them. Right. And the other piece that adds to their stress is they don't have any kind of downtime for the things you were talking about when it comes to self-care, taking care of themselves, right? Like they could be, who knows, breaking up a fight and a minute later it's like, all right, you know what? You got to finish your math lesson. So they get their 30-minute lunch, which ends up where I'm at, you know, probably 20 minutes by the time they drop the kids off and stuff because it's an elementary setting. And so 20-minute lunch, and then they get a 50-minute prep time where they're really trying to prepare their lessons and the rest of their day or the following day. So they can be dealing with traumatic situations, things that get out of hand, things that get out of control, and have no time to debrief to decompress and to really process what had just happened. You know, that's so true. And I, I wrote a blog piece probably, I don't know, within the last year. And I, it was titled Always On. And I wrote about a conversation I had with a friend of mine who isn't a teacher, but who works with educators. And he just couldn't, couldn't fully grasp the concept of teachers always having to be on and you know I, I was explaining that to him how it's just uh, and that, and he's very appreciative of it he just did he couldn't grasp because he hasn't been a teacher himself but there's no time I mean there's not even a few seconds usually and it's so difficult to always be on to not have your brain relax and you know the cortisol is always kicking in we have we have students that come to us every day and I mean People know the research on that, that you know, the cortisol affects your brain development. Well, as a teacher, sometimes if you're stressed or you don't get a chance to relax at all during the day, it, it's just it's so difficult. And it's, it's, phys- it's physically exhausting, even though you know, you're not doing push-ups or lifting weights. It's physically exhausting and, and mentally exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been called into a room as I'm walking down the hall so that somebody could finally go to the restroom. 
<laughs> you know, a teacher. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I've had teachers come to me and say, you know what, Mr. Harper, I apologize, but I uh, I just threw up in the bathroom, and is it is it okay if I go home? And I'm thinking, you, first of all, don't apologize, and secondly, you don't need to ask me that. You can definitely go home. I mean, I, my wife's an educator, and I think if someone ever had my wife stay at work after she threw up, I'd I'd be quite angry. I mean, I, you know, it's but it takes administrators, you know understanding and not forgetting what it's like to be a teacher to to run a building and sometimes you know most most administrators are that way and that's good but sometimes they aren't and that's difficult for teachers because boy there's so much on them absolutely there's not a lot of other professions i can think about where you can't take a bathroom break whenever you want to or you have to ask for permission to leave because you're gonna leave your class stranded and you're feeling guilty about it right so asking if it's okay if they go home when they throw up you know there's not another job like that where they are stuck, you know, they're stuck in their rooms. Yeah, I mean, not to mention, you know, for a sub day, you might spend a couple hours doing sub plans. And you you know, as well as I do, a lot of times teachers say it's just easier to come in sick. And this sounds bad saying this now, but, you know, to, to come in not feeling well, you know, if they have a real bad migraine or something like that or a headache, and they'd rather just come in for the seven and a half hours than spend two and a half hours doing sub plans. It's, yeah. it's sad. Absolutely. And then we have had troubles getting subs a lot of times. There's such a sub shortage. Do you guys experience that as well? We do. We do. I, you know, a big part of my job, I think, is building relationships with substitutes and building strong bonds with them. So I've been very lucky in the schools where I've worked that I've made it a, I've made it a point of mine to try to to try to work hard with the substitutes because sometimes substitutes, oftentimes they work two or three jobs. And so if they need to leave an hour early, I'll try to find coverage. If they need to come an hour late, I'll try to find coverage. I'm not a stickler for that. If I know that they're going to you know, do everything they can to help me out, I try to help them out. Yeah. I usually uh, try to get into the classrooms where there's a sub early on in the day and give kind of the smackdown lecture as much of a smackdown as I give, which is not much, but really it's setting the, the precedent of, you know, this is a guest teacher. We treat them like a guest. We expect you to be on the best behavior and you represent your entire school when this guest teacher is in your classroom, because this is how their day goes and this is what they know. And they walk out of our building and they're human like everybody else and share what they experienced. And we want them to be able to share what an amazing school we have. No, that's so, so important. Yeah, so I really try to support them as well. What Can you give us a sense of the population you work with? Are you in an urban setting uh, or suburban? I would say it's urban. Where I've worked for the – this this year's different. I, this is my first year. I'm in an alternative school right now. Okay. And it's unique in that we are grade 3 through 12, and we have – sometimes between, which is going to sound really small, between 10 and 15 to 20 students. Wow. So it's very, so it's very small. But in the past, the 10 years before, 10 or 12 years before that, I've worked in schools that you would probably call an urban setting with about 400, uh, 450 students. Okay. 400 so students. the current setting from grade 3 to 12 entails just the 20 students total? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. And so are there multiple grade levels? I'm thinking multiple grades in one room. There are. We keep uh, elementary, in other words, third, fourth, and fifth are in one part of the bu- one part, and then middle and high school are in this other part of the building. Okay. And alternative, can you describe the students at all? Like, are they coming with a particular special ed disability? 
usually it's the it's it's kids who have made you know bad behavior choices sometimes as a result of a disciplinary measure and it's it's the step before you might expel somebody okay. so sometimes if, if students are recommended for expulsion nobody ever wants to do that and so you know, we always believe kids deserve a second chance. That's what we say at New Directions. New Directions Learning Academy, the place where kids deserve a second chance. That's like our little slogan. So, okay, cool. You so know, we try to. Some are special ed, I bet, and some are not special ed. I trying to think. Yeah, they're, we have a little bit of everything, yes. Okay, cool. Yes. And so, but they're there primarily for behavior. So I would imagine a. It can be a challenging mix of kids, and do you have a, a fair amount of support services, counselors, social workers, and such? We do. We have a little bit. We have social worker, guidance counselor, teachers, uh, ed specialists. We have a good staff. Okay. So it, that makes it nice. I mean, that's that's always the key. You know, you can. I've found in all my years, you can handle almost anything as long as you're beside good people. And I've been lucky to be beside good people for my whole career. Right, and I would imagine that the teachers you have there are dealing with some, obviously some really challenging behaviors and are people the the exact staff that should be reading the article you wrote in ASCD, right? Making sure they're taking care of themselves and having some time to, to decompress and such. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I've been saying recently is that, I believe there's not enough mental health support for our students and, and everybody knows it. Like we're our, our teachers went, went on strike recently, St. Paul public schools. They were on a three day uh -huh. strike, came back one day before we moved uh, to distance learning because of the COVID-19. But one of the big things they were saying was we need better mental health support in the schools for our students. And one thing that I say often is I believe that, our teachers actually need a much better system of mental health supports because many of our urban educators and probably a lot of suburban and urban and rural even have their own con issues and concerns. But a lot of our urban educators are dealing with kids who are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis and they exhibit behaviors that show it. And then we are the recipients of that behavior often. And like we've talked about previously, there's no time to decompress. There's no time to do anything, right? You could have a suicidal kid uh, in your classroom and, you know, make a call for an assistant principal, a counselor, a social worker, get the kid settled down and out of the room. And it's like, all right, have fun with the rest of your lesson. Thanks. You know, or a teacher who may have their own mental health struggles and HR might come in, depending on how serious it gets, and they essentially say, all right, hey, we have an EAP, our employee assistance program. You get four free counseling sessions, confidential, which I think is awesome, but I also think it's a drop in the bucket of what an educator probably needs if they're dealing with possible depression, burnout, other types of mental illnesses, and secondary trauma, right? The compassion trauma, secondary trauma, which everybody knows when you're dealing with the trauma of others, you're taking that on. So I really believe we need a lot more support. And that's why your article really resonated with me. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you spoke to is what I've, I've dealt with. This year has been different, but up, up until, I mean, different in that I'm in a school where there's only 10 to 20 students. But I've dealt with that a lot where I see teachers who are just, they're exhausted, they're, they have anxiety, they might 
be going through depression. And, you know, one of the most powerful things I've found over the years, and it took me, it took me a little while to do this, but was just to admit to other teachers about what I'm going through. And I tell other educators in person, in, in my writing, on podcasts, I mean, that I have anxiety and that I take medication for it. And I've, I've told students that sometimes. Sometimes if I think a student's hesitant or whatever, they don't want to take their medicine. I mean, I don't go into the specific details of what I take, but, and I can tell it makes a difference to teachers just to know that they're not alone. I mean, I've, I've sat down and had some real heart-to-heart conversations with teachers about what I've gone through emotionally and, you know, taking medication for anxiety. And it, I could tell it helped them feel a little bit better. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't cure someone, but just to know that you're not alone makes a big, big difference to people. And I think that's one of the biggest messages we can get out there to others besides having good mental health help and, you know, possibly seeing a, a therapist that they need to, or possibly taking medication if that's the right way to go. But knowing that you're not alone is worth so much. I agree with you a hundred percent. And, you know, we only connected a week ago and you may not know my story at all, but I've gone through two bouts of major depression and my second bout, and many of the listeners um, have heard this already, but my second bout was really, really extreme. And I uh, essentially became suicidal and I took time off of work and I finally checked myself into a partial hospitalization program to recover from depression and I had to leave work and there was a lot of shame that was involved with that. You know, I didn't want anybody to know. And I've talked quite a bit about shame on this show as well. The shame I had and some pretty significant examples, but I didn't share with anybody at work for quite some time until probably a few years after I recovered from my second and hopefully my last, but who knows, bout of major depression I started to blog about it. I started to write about my story. Then I created a Twitter account to drive traffic to it. And then quickly, once I had the Twitter going, I know staff found out about it because a couple of people followed me. And you know how schools are. Word spreads like wildfire in the halls. Mm -hmm. So so people know my story. And I don't flaunt it. I don't go out there and, and share it with people if they don't ask. But it has certainly come up for me as well. And, you know, I think the conversations with students vary a lot depending on grade level and where they're at and how much you can share and so forth. But with parents as well, when I know they're going through a really tough time, I'll mention the fact that I've seen a therapist or that I am seeing one depending on the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll share with them that I was in a hospitalization program. If I feel like it's appropriate to the conversation to let them know you can go through this, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to reach out for help and as difficult it is as it is, that's the right thing to do. But so I would agree a hundred percent. And I know, I know the conversations I'm having the past couple of years are so different with teachers who are willing to tell me they're dealing with their kid in therapy or they need to leave for a therapy appointment or they'll come and mention that they read my latest blog or heard my latest podcast episode. And I think that really immensely greatly helps the culture alone that you can talk freely about it. I think that's huge. Absolutely. I mean, I think it makes a huge difference, like I said, to know you're not alone. And, you know, once you get it out there, once you're once you're comfortable with sharing what you're going through, whether it be that, whether it be uh, being vulnerable with different things in your life, you, you reach a point where you almost don't worry about it anymore. 
Right. And it's not that you don't care about it anymore as far as making mistakes or sharing things, but you realize, you know what, you, you become stronger. And it's almost paradoxical in that we think if we share a weakness, it's going to make us seem weaker. But what I've found is in sharing weaknesses and being vulnerable that I've become stronger. It's made me feel stronger and it's helped others feel better. And so I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I know that you believe in sharing stories as well, because that's a bit of what you do as well, right? You have two podcasts and you've authored a book, right? You wrote a book called My Bad 24 Educators Who Messed Up, Fessed Up and Grew, right? Which is exactly what we're talking about. Yes, yes. I I stopped my bad probably last... Probably about a year ago. The podcast? Yes, it's still up, and it's still a lot of people still go to it. But I've had it for about three or four years, and now I still I co-host with Mandy Freilich. We do Teachers Aid. Right. So the the my bad though the whole purpose of that really was to share. I know what I read of the little subtitle of it was extraordinary educators talk about how and what they learn from sharing their own mistakes. It's all that vulnerability piece you mentioned, which I think is a hugely positive and really critical, actually, quality of a good administrator. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I was very lucky over the over the four years that I interviewed, gosh, probably over, I don't know, 120, 130 people. And I mean, I had amazing folks come on and share share big mistakes that they made and mistakes that, you know, most people wouldn't have known about. And their educators you know, that we look up to that, you know, some of them are New York Times bestselling authors. Sometimes they're people that, you know, they might, they're uh, guest speakers or whatever. And it, it's just, it's heartening to know that, you know, what they messed up to just like us. So when you hear it, you're, you're able to exhale a little bit and give yourself a little bit of grace. Yeah. And there's also, I think, a piece of learning about authenticity of them, right? Like they're being real, they make mistakes and they, they are, they're okay with that and talk about it and grow from it. And it just, it helps build relationships. And I know you quoted in the ASCD article, uh, part of Brene Brown, one of her books. And I know, you know, she talks a lot about vulnerability and shame. Oh, I love her. She's, she's amazing. She's just, I was just watching her recent interview on 60 minutes that she did, uh, a week or two ago, and it was just it was just wonderful. Oh, I'll have to check that out. So tell us about the podcast you are doing. So you do one, it's called Teacher's Aid, and like you mentioned, you co-host it, right? And the, the subline I read for that one says, providing social and emotional support for the very personal challenges teachers face. So it's awesome. It's along the same, all the things we've been talking once again, social emotional support for the educators, Yes, I mean we don't get into any curricular things like that. I mean not that that's not important, but we take on things like uh, perfectionism, resiliency, self-doubt, anxiety, fear. I mean we take on, you know, right now it's just it's it's something we see that a lot of teachers not that we see that they need. I mean I know that they need it because I work with teachers and it's things that I needed when I was in the classroom, I think. And it's it's a lot of fun because we get to talk to other teachers and of uh, and some experts in the field and, you know, hear how they worked with worked through this and get some suggestions on how to help teachers feel better. Yeah, it's awesome. I haven't had a chance to listen to a lot of them because I only just found out about it, but I did listen to a couple and one I uh, really enjoyed was 
a woman whose book I have, Elena Aguilar, who has written the book Onward, which is all just about teacher resiliency. Yes, yes, she was amazing. I mean, she's an amazing author, and that is so important, being resilient. And it's, and it's tough. It's tough. I mean, it's a strong word. It's a powerful word, but it's something that I think we're all capable of, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes. That means we're fallible, but it means, you know, we continue, in my opinion, it means we continue to, to get up and start over again. Absolutely. Do you happen to have a favorite episode on Teacher's Aid or one that really stands out? Hmm. I want to, uh, you know, I always enjoy talking with Peter DeWitt. I don't know if you know Peter DeWitt, but he and Mandy and I talked about just self-doubt. And Peter DeWitt's an educator from New York who speaks all over the all over the globe, really. Yeah. He works with Corwin. And he and I have met before and you know, we we stay in touch and just just the honesty that he brings to a conversation is wonderful. And Mandy, my co host, is wonderful as well. And it's just it was just almost like three of us were just in a room talking about self doubt and how it affected us and sharing stories and I think the the comfort level was there and it was just it was just great. I mean, he's always very vulnerable and very willing to share what he went through, you know, growing up how he had a lot of self-doubt and that always makes it that's always the precursor I think to a good conversation is if someone's willing to be vulnerable. In other words, I've I I learned that last year and I did not know this, I'll be honest, I've read this and that vulnerability comes before trust. And up until a long time before that, I thought trust came first and then vulnerability. But the research has shown, and then I read a book called uh, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. It's a really good book. And in that, he talks about the research that showing that vulnerability has to come first and then trust. That's led to some really good interviews in that in the very beginning of my bad, the first probably 10 episodes, I was very vulnerable and shared some big mistakes. And I think that opened it up for people to come on and I guess we're talking about teachers. I also had Peter on teacher on my bed, but I think that helps a lot when you're talking to people. If they see you're willing to give, then they're going to give too. Right. Absolutely. Any episode of yours that was, I don't know, maybe like shocking, like you, somebody said something you weren't just caught you off guard. You know, uh, one of the coolest episodes was, uh, with, with Dave Burgess. I don't know if you know Dave Burgess. You probably know Dave Burgess. Who's, published many books and written, you know, Teach Like a Pirate, amazing speaker, amazing author. But he came on and was willing to share, not willing, he openly shared a time where he he bombed a lesson two years in a row. And to hear him talk about bombing a lesson, you just, you just don't picture someone with his energy and his charisma not commanding the student's attention, let alone an audience of five or 10,000 people. And to hear him come on and say, you know what, John, I just two years in a row, I just absolutely bombed this lesson and I was just livid. It, 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 it made me feel good. And I mean, he was openly sharing it and he's an amazing educator, amazing publisher. You know, I've never met him in person, but, you know, connected with him just online and stuff. And it's just, it was really cool to hear someone like that say that. And that, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he's done so well and able to publish so many books and have so many people, you know, look up to him, which they should, because he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, that's awesome. And you had shared already that you live with anxiety and that you take medication. When, mm -hmm. uh, when do you think you realized that you had anxiety? When was the first time that manifested? It was a, 
about eight years ago, I was just going through a lot of difficult times at school. And school was just really, really stressful. It was during testing season. I'll never forget it. And I woke up one morning and I was shivering and I was shaking and I couldn't get my brain to slow down. And I was having like a breakdown. I guess you'd call it a breakdown or as what does Bernie Brown call it? A spiritual awakening or something like that. I forget how, what the, I think she terms it something like that. Yeah, but I think you're right. I just, I, I couldn't get myself to relax. I was shaking. My brain just couldn't, couldn't focus. And I didn't go to school for a couple of days. I ended up losing 20, 25 pounds that I, I couldn't afford to lose. You know, right now I wouldn't mind losing 10 to 15 pounds, but at that point I couldn't afford to lose 20 or 25 pounds. My clothes were baggy on me. I just, the smell of coffee in the morning repulsed me. And that's like my favorite smell and drink on the earth is coffee. That's pretty much all I drink is coffee and water. And it was just, it was a really difficult time. It took a while to get, to get back to where it took me months. And I think the biggest thing was that I think similar to what you said, I didn't, I didn't really share with anybody. I shared with my wife and maybe one other person, but I think looking back on that, and that's something I try to talk to other educators about is that, you know what, it, if I had reached out to other people, it would have, it would have, I would have gotten through it easier. It doesn't mean I still wouldn't have anxiety, but I think it would have been easier. I would have had an easier time with that. And I think I still would have the anxiety, but it's just, I think oftentimes we think that we can't share our weaknesses. And sometimes as men, we think, you know what, I'm supposed to be a strong, tough guy. I should be able to handle this. And that's just not the way to think. I mean, it's, it just it just didn't work out for me, and then I finally I watched I watched a TED talk by Joe Mazza, who I actually recently had on uh, Teachers Aid. He's a principal up in I think it's New York or Pennsylvania. I think it's New York, and he talked about having anxiety. And, and in this talk, he said, "You know what? When I take the medication, he had, he talked about a lot of things in his TED talk. But one of his things was he said, you know, when I take medication, I'm a better father.'" I'm a better husband, and I'm a better educator. And that really hit home. And then I read a piece by Nicholas, I hope I don't mispronounce, Nicholas Provenzano, I think is his name, the nerdy teacher. And he talked about having depression. And after reading those two pieces, it inspired me to write a piece. And I wrote a piece called The Mask We Wear, a blog piece, and where I just talked about having anxiety and have, wearing a mask because it, during that time, most mostly what I wrote about were just happy moments with my kids and I tried to connect them to education. Right. You know, in, in the last couple of years, I've been more focused with my writing, but in the, when I first started blogging, I would write about happy moments with my kids and I would connect them to education. But it was a tough time and it was a, it was a tough time. I mean, I'd lost a lot of weight. So you, I, you made it sound like you essentially kind of woke up. I mean, did it, creep up on you slowly and you saw some signs or did you just wake up and was essentially kind of a, a panic attack uh, that came out of nowhere? I think it was kind of that. It was gradual. I mean, I think I did. It was gradual up until that point where I was like, I woke up that morning. I mean, probably for that year it was gradual. And then all of a sudden I woke up and I was like, holy shit. Oh, sorry. I'm like, no holy cow. I, I, I mean, I'm 20 pounds underweight. I'm shaking. I can't relax. I had plenty of blankets. I had everything I needed, and yet this isn't good. And so, so you know, so I, it was leading up to that that you had already been losing the weight and already been right. struggling sleeping. 
Right, you know, sleeping and just and what, couldn't focus. What do you think, were there things happening in your life that you could attribute it to? And I'm curious if you ever experienced anxiety at all before that. That's the weird thing. I don't think I had experienced anxiety before that. Maybe I was a, a nervous person, so maybe it was underlying and I just didn't know it. But the, I remember just the school that year was really difficult. I was in charge of testing. There was a lot of snow that year. I had to keep rescheduling stuff. And it was just, it just overwhelmed me. And I just got to the point where I just, I guess my system just couldn't handle it. How and young were your kids at the time? They were about eight and two. Yeah. So a two year old at home, you're talking home stress as well, I would imagine. Yeah. A little home stress, I guess there with that. But I mean, I, you know, I've got a wonderful kids and a great wife. So it wasn't, it wasn't too much that I think it was mostly work. I mean, I think, and I say that because I want other educators to know that it's, it's not a sign of weakness. If you're feeling anxiety, depressed, stress, if, if you just come home and hate your job one day and you just say, you know what, this sucks. That doesn't mean you're a bad teacher. doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you're human. And what we do every day as educators, and not we because I'm not a teacher anymore, what teachers do every day is unbelievably difficult. And it takes it takes too much out of you. I think too much is expected of teachers in a lot of places. And I think it's time that we give them more space and more, like you said, more mental health services and more time to – to breathe, more space to just think and relax and not have to be on every second of the day. Right. How long do you think the period was before your kind of breakdown that you were experiencing all of this and, and in the, the downfall of losing weight and and these other symptoms, how long of a period would, would you say that was before you finally kind of broke down? Probably a couple months. I think I would say three or four months. Okay. And was your wife noticing stuff? I think, yeah, she was aware that I just, I wasn't happy. I mean, it wasn't anything to do with my wife. My wife and I were, it wasn't anything with her. It was just, she probably, I'm sure she noticed because, I mean, she actually ordered me new clothing. I remember she wow. one of those like, uh, yeah, and, I can't and remember this, those companies where you order a box of clothing. I forget what they're called. That's but, uh, funny, but just to, just to let you know, I was, I did not mean at all to insinuate you guys were having problems. I know, oh, no, from, no, yeah. I know from my depression, like, oh, it was crystal clear to my wife. I mean, I couldn't socialize with people. So if we went yeah. out, I was like just standing there pretty much non-communicative. So, I mean, it stood out to my wife like, like crazy, even though we weren't, the issue wasn't with her. Yeah. And I mean, it was just, and I, and I'm an introvert by nature, which sometimes people, misunderstand what that means in the sense that in other words it's the way i recharge is being by myself so sometimes that's you know it can be tough but it was it was a tough time it was a really tough time so then you talked about writing about it but what did you do so you took some time off right away i think you said you took a couple days off i did took a couple days off from work and i you know i went back to school and i you know i wrote about this i continued to wear a mask as if nothing was wrong so you, and then, you didn't go to a doctor at all at that point? I did. I went to a doctor and we tried a couple of different medications and it ended up, you know, finally ended up finding something that it, it took a couple of weeks. You know, when you hear that, you want, you want something right away, but obviously nothing works right away, but or in general, nothing works right away. And so it took a couple of weeks and I got myself, you know, back to where I was feeling better. I was sharing more and then, you know, started to put the weight back on. 
And then summer came, so I think it was winter when this happened. So summer came, and I was able to, you know, be away from school for a while, and that that helped tremendously. Right. And losing weight, your wife was buying you clothes. That's so funny because that totally resonates with me. And for me, I lost close to 50 pounds. And for me, it was a really good thing, actually, because I am a heavy guy and I could still lose weight because I gained it all back. But for me, it was almost like a scarlet letter. Like, oh, my God, everybody's going to know I'm depressed. Everybody's going to know I'm sick. Look at this crazy amount of weight I've lost. My clothes were baggy. My wife took me shopping to get different clothes. And I should have looked at that as the silver lining. Great. I've lost weight. I needed to do that anyhow. But in my mind, it was the scarlet letter. It was awful. It was a, a huge indicator to everybody that I was really sick. And then as I started my recovery, I was eating like mad. Felt like I had to gain back the weight because it was such a bad thing, which is so odd to me. Clearly, I still wasn't in a good place if that's how my thought process was. So you take two days off of work. How soon do you finally go to a doctor? Probably within, I think within that week. And you just kind of knew like, I can't live like this. I need to go to a doctor. Or did your wife kind of push you towards going to the doctor or... And and tell us about that first appointment. I think both. I think my wife pushed me because she's like, you know what, John, you got, you got to do that. And I guess the first time you go, it feels it feels weird, I guess, when you're talking about that. But it shouldn't. And I think, you know, my wonderful doctor, and he said, you know what, we're going to try some things out. And I think the first time, I can't even remember what we tried. It didn't didn't quite work, or it didn't work right away and then did he tell you right away exactly what was going on with you like john this is a classic case of anxiety or a panic attack or how did he describe it to you and did he give you an official diagnosis right away gosh you know i should be able to remember that but i can't i mean i think he definitely said it was anxiety because I, I had lost so much weight my stomach was just always in knots you know i told him i couldn't rest my brain and, uh, you know, there's times where I wasn't like that. I mean, there's times during the day where I was fine. But, I mean, even now, there's still some times where I'll wake up in the morning and I'll feel jittery. I'll feel jittery and, and anxious. Not sad, but just jittery and on edge as if something's going on, something's wrong, and, and nothing whatsoever is going wrong. And it doesn't happen that often any, as much anymore, but... It's weird. I don't know if you ever have that, but I'll wake up some mornings and I'll be like, whoa, what's that? And it's just, you know, I take medicine in the morning, but even I just, and then once I get to work and get moving, things seem, things seem to get rolling and things seem to get better. But a lot of times what I found, especially when I was in the midst of it, it's always the anticipation. It's the waiting. It's the right before you get to work. And once you get in the midst of it and you're in the job and you're in the trenches, as they say, then things seem to, things seem to get better for me. Right. It's the time when you're when you're driving and you're thinking and you're laying in bed or you're thinking about what you should have done, could have done, whatever. Then those are the hardest times I found. It's also interesting to me that you don't describe this at all as depression. And I'm wondering if the doctor ever did. And I mean, I'm not a doctor, but man, it seems like very similar to what I was going through, very similar to my symptoms. And I mm -hmm. do know and have always heard that anxiety and depression often go hand in hand. And uh, most people that I have spoken to who have a diagnosis of depression, it comes along with a non-specified, generalized anxiety. 
disorder as well. Did they ever discuss it possibly being depression? I don't recall he did. I'll be honest. I, you think I would remember that, but I mean, it, it could it could very well be. I'll be honest with you. It could very well be. I don't know, but uh, I think since since I've been taking the medication and since I've been able to just be more since I've been able to be more vulnerable with a lot of things and just be open about it, I think that that helped a lot. That took a lot off my back being being vulnerable, opening up about things, and obviously the med, the medication has helped that helped a lot and so it's, it's possible it could be that i have have or had depression i don't i've never heard a diagnosed as that with, with my doctor but right it could and be. how long once you saw the doctor how long did it take you before you'd say you were well on the road to recovery or feeling significantly better probably took a at least a month or two i'd okay. say at least a month or two because i was still going to work and i think you know work when so that part of that, that, the main thing that was causing me the stress was work, and so that still was there. Right. I was only offering that for a couple of days. I think if I probably, I guess if I could have taken off a month or two, if it had gotten to the case, it had gotten to the point where I would have had to take off a month or two, then I maybe have gotten through it sooner. Right. But you know, it, it would flare up when I was at work. Sometimes it's just the stress of it, or at least, like I said, it would it would build up, and then at home I'd be thinking about it, and then I'd go back to work, and I'd be the the adrenaline, the fight or flight would kick in, and I'd be fine, and then I get home, and then I think about it, and then I wake up the next morning, and I think about it, and then you get to work, and you're, it's a cycle, you know. Yep. And you didn't mention this at all to your principal or anybody at the school? No, I had some people that I connected with online that uh, through Voxer. Okay. Was, I've had some friends through Voxer. I don't know if you know, but the, the app Voxer and just some people in my PLN that I would connect with, and you know, they really helped me get through it. Right. So in the end, looking back on that, I know you said the meds took a, a piece of it, being vulnerable and starting to finally share about it and connecting with people online you just mentioned. Other things you did to help you recover from that episode? Were you watching out for your diet? Were you trying to get better sleep? Right. I'm trying to think. Exercise. I think, I guess there's the, there's the medication there was the being more vulnerable, and I think you you have to reach a point, and this comes with the vulnerability sometimes, in which you realize you just don't give a crap about certain things. And it doesn't mean you don't care, but there's certain things in your life that you realize you just can't stress over that. You know, Ryan Holiday talks about that with the Stoic philosophy a lot. In other words, where there's just certain things in our lives that are out of our control, and we can't we can't control that. And I, I got better at that, realizing, you know what, John, you can't you can't let that bother you. You don't have any control over what that person's going to do or say or what's going to happen with this or that. And you got to let it go. And I, I got better with that. Right. And I'm still getting better with that. That's always, I mean, I think we all battle that as humans, trying to, you know, focus on the things that we can control and not worry about the things that are out of our control. I mean, that's tough. Yeah. It's very tough to do. But I think it helps a lot when you you finally reach a point where you're like, you know what, I can't control that and I can't let that bother me. Yeah, it's interesting that you make me think about a book also that um, is titled The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F asterisk CK. Oh, yes. And uh, I, you know, it sounds, oh, yeah. it sounds a, a little ridiculous, but it's a great book. And really, that's exactly what he talks about in the book is you, you have to figure out what you don't have control over what you don't have to worry about and just let those go and really figure out what you want to focus on and where you want to prioritize. 
You do. And I, I was going to mention this. I didn't know. I, I won't say the word, but a, a friend of mine said, you know what, John, you have to reach a point where you become unethable. Yeah. And the F stands for the one word. But he, and it was I've, I've told this to other teachers before. Yeah. I'm saying this in a podcast. I really don't care, though, because I think it's important. You have to give a point where you just become untouchable. But, you know, you, I, I use another word sometimes. You can with even the right say teacher. the word on this show. I don't even mind. <laughs> uh, you become unfuckwithable. You, 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 you do. You, yeah. you become where, you know what, it's not going to touch me. I realize what's important. I know who I am. And, you know, another thing that I, I did during that time was I made my circle tighter. Nice. And by what by that I mean, you know, I realized, John, what's most important right now is your wife and your kids. And you know, other things in life are important, but right now it's about my wife and my kids. And if they're good, then I'm good, and I'm going to take care of me, and that's what matters most at that point. Right. And that was really important to me, and that helped me get better too. Awesome, awesome. And then I know you talked about since then some days that are a challenge and you get to work and, and you get through it and it's not that bad once you're at work. But have you ever had another episode that kind of compared to this one since then? I don't think I have. You know, one of the things that causes me a lot of anxiety is I'm a master, not master, I'm a procrastinator. And I've, I've learned over the last couple of years that one of my biggest sources of anxiety and maybe it had something to do with back then because I was getting ready for testing season and I was the testing coordinator, is procrastination. And I continually procrastinate. And I'm, I'm getting better with that. But I think there's been times where I've had deadlines and I've had to just stay up really late. And then I think about it and I think about it too much instead of just working on it. And it would cause me a lot of stress. And sometimes, you know, Brene Brown talks about this when people – Stress. Some people go uh, on hyper mode, and some people shut down. And I think sometimes when I stress, I shut down, and right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything, and then it would just cause me more stress because it wasn't done. And then I would, I would, you know, I'd go on YouTube and go down some YouTube rabbit hole, and you know, watch who knows what, watch a scene from Gladiator, and then watch you this, and then watch this, and then all of a sudden I realized, John, you didn't get anything done, and you just spent two hours where you should have been doing what you needed to get done, and instead you didn't. And then you stress about the work you haven't done. Yeah. Oh, I can completely relate. It's funny. My brother has an ex-girlfriend because my brother and I have talked about procrastination quite a few times. And he has this ex-girlfriend who like could never understand why he would procrastinate. And she just said it kind of matter of factly. Like, I just get, you know, do the things I need to do right away so that I don't have to think about them and worry about them. And both my brother and I are like, wow, that makes so much sense. But we both procrastinate. Mm -hmm. It does. And I'll be honest, there's times when, when I do get it done, I'm like, God, this feels, it's almost like an, it's an adrenaline rush. It feels so good. And I'm thinking, why don't I always do this? And I'm, I'm trying to get better at that. But yeah, absolutely. And not only like it felt so good, but also like, wow, that was so much easier than, you know, than the worry I put into it for a week. And it was so oh, easy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's the truth. It's like, you know, when it comes time to do a uh, evaluations or observations or reports or whatever and then you wait till the last minute and you think about it and you're still thinking about it all that time when you could just do it and get it over with that is funny so tell us john how can people get to your podcast i know you have a blog as well and how can they find your book that you've written i'll be honest everything is uh can be accessed on my website at johnharper.blog and john is j-o-n it's just johnharper.blog. I have uh, links on there to my book, podcast, uh, speaking, and my writing. Awesome. Cool. That's fantastic. 
And then, John, before we wrap up, I want to ask you if there's some a listener out there right now who's struggling, whether they're an educator, maybe an educator who's listening, or any other person who's listening who's going through a tough time now with you know intense anxiety like you talked about or depression, what's a, what one piece of advice or suggestion would you give them right now? I would, I mean, one of the biggest things is to know that you're not alone. And I know I've talked about that and that it does suck and that it does hurt and that there's people right around you that are feeling the same thing. And a lot of times you just don't know it because a lot of us, and I didn't for the longest time, we don't open up about it, but a lot of us are going through the same thing and to reach out. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd be fine if someone reached out to me and voxed me or messaged me on on Twitter. Yeah. I'd be glad to, to talk to them about that because I think it's important to, to find someone to talk to. And, you know, most of the time someone's not going to retest to someone they don't know. But a lot of times there's people right in your own neighborhood, in your own school, in your own hallway that, you know, and it, I talk about stepping first. A lot of times we have to be the ones that step first and say, you know what? I'm really nervous about this, or I really feel anxious about this, or I've, I've been depressed for the last month. And then a lot of times what someone will do is they'll say, you know what, me too. And then all of a sudden it breaks walls down. Yeah. Yep. Great advice. So know that you're not alone and, and reach out for help. And, you know, reaching out for help can be so difficult and it is also so important and can literally be life-saving. No, I agree. I, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger gave an excellent talk or a speech at some graduation. I can't remember where it was, but he talked about the myth of the self-made man. And he said, you know, don't let anybody ever tell you they're a self-made person. He said, it takes a lot of people. He said, I may have, there's a lot of stories out there that, you know, I came over here from, gosh, I forget where he came from, uh, Czechoslovakia, somewhere. Yeah. He came over to the United States and he became Mr. Olympia and this and this and this. But he said, I had a lot of help. I had a ton of people helping me. And he said, there's no such thing as the self-made man or self-made woman. Everybody needs help. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, John, I want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for having an, an educator-centered podcast. I think that's awesome. The books you've written and so forth and the blog. And, uh, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. Oh, it was my honor. Thanks so much. I hope listeners enjoy it. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. Absolutely. You too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.